Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. For the first time in three decades, the House of Representatives intervened in a labor dispute between railroad companies and their workers. But what are the issues causing the dispute and why are so many worried about a labor stoppage? Thomson Reuters correspondent David Shepardson stops by to unpack the latest about the potential rail strike and how Washington is responding. Plus, the prosecutor's office recently completed a backlog of 11,000 rape kits. We'll discuss the matter with County Prosecutor Kim Worthy next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. The story of America's growth is a story of the railroad. Before we had airplanes and even automobiles, it was the train that was the engine of America's economy. Only a decade after the country's founding, the rail system allowed for the transport of goods and tonnage in speeds unheard of in the days of horses and buggies. It was the railroad that drove the huge expansion of the U.S. economy, which grew almost tenfold in the last quarter of the 19th century. Perhaps this is why what is unfolding between the railroad industry and labor in our country strikes a chord with so many. Yesterday, the U.S. House of Representatives passed two resolutions in an effort to head off a potential labor stoppage one week from today. While the Senate will still need to improve at least one of the bills by a 60-vote supermajority to prevent the stoppage, even this move is significant. It's the first time in roughly 30 years Congress has intervened in a railroad labor dispute. So what is at issue in this dispute? What issues have both parties holding out for a better deal? Why did the House of Representatives pass two bills instead of one? And will this bill even clear the Senate? What will we as a country confront if the deal doesn't get done? Later in the hour, we'll be joined by Congressman Andy Levin to get his insight on where things are with Congress in this dispute. But before that, to help us unpack the myriad of issues at play in this matter, I'm joined by David Shepardson. He is a correspondent with Thomson Reuters who covers transportation and, perhaps most importantly, he's a Michigan native. David, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Hey, so let's start just here. What is at issue in the labor talks and the labor dispute that we have right now? Sure. So, so this has gone on for you know several years of bargaining. And if you remember, back in September, there was nearly a shutdown uh, of the rail system uh, as the parties you know didn't we were couldn't get to a deal uh, until almost the very last minute. You know, the labor secretary Marty Walsh you know brought the parties together. And, and so the deal that was struck is largely uh, the, the basis of a presidential emergency board that was appointed by, in July. And, you know, on the wage side, I think the workers would agree it's a pretty healthy contract. It's a, it's a 24% compounded pay raise over the period of the contract, plus five yearly $1,000 bonuses. There's no, you know, additional costs on on health care, it's slightly improved. But 
but fundamentally, what's really gotten the anger of, of, of lawmakers, and, and not just Democrats, but some Republicans, as Congressman Levin is going to raise later, I'm sure, is is, is the, the scheduling system. And the railroads have cut thousands of workers over the last decade. They've come under enormous pressure from, you know, from some shareholders to, to cut labor costs. And as a result, they really have held the line uh, on, on, on paid sick, on, on not allowing paid sick leave for short-term absences. And that, and that, that really is at the heart of the dispute. So people have been concerned about what the ramifications of a labor stoppage would be. Uh, I've heard even $2 billion lost per day, for example. Do we know what really would be the economic impact of a stoppage? We certainly we, we have we, we certainly know it would be catastrophic, and we, I don't know if two billion is the right figure. You know, President Biden on Monday, you know, we broke with his traditional labor allies and said, "Hey, we, you know, Congress, you need to step in and you need to, to impose this contract, even though four of the twelve unions have not voted for it. You know, eight of twelve have, uh, but you know, I think you know, you talk about the, the, you know, a couple of good examples. One. You know, Mary Barr, the CEO of General Motors, back in September talked about how at the truck assembly plants, they get all those truck bodies on on the rail cars. And they're too big to ship, you know, on, uh, you know, by, you know, by, you know, over the road semi tractor trailers. So she she said if there had been a rail strike in September within a day, you know, GM's truck plants would shut down because you know, they, they couldn't get they wouldn't have enough truck bodies to assemble those vehicles. You know, you know, more than two thirds of all finished cars, you know, travel by rail. Uh, so, you know, this would this would slow the sale of new vehicles to, to dealers. But things like the chemicals that water treatment plants rely on, fertilizer, hazardous waste, uh, I'm sorry, hazardous uh, chemicals, uh, materials, um, you know, food shipments. I mean, I, I think within within days or not, or a day, it would it would really start to cripple parts of the economy. And then don't forget, you know, Amtrak and you know, commuter commuter rail systems rely on those tracks, too. They Those long-distance trains, you know, say the Detroit to Chicago train would have to stop running. And even in September, you know, Amtrak was forced to halt some of those trains even before the potential strike. So, and then you throw in the fact that we're just before the holiday season and all the, you know, Christmas presents and other things could really, you know, tie up the supply chain uh, you know, with not a lot of time left before the end of the year. Yeah, it sounds like it would have a big impact on the big three based on what I'm hearing from you. You already bring up the example yep. of GM. Are there alternative means of transportation that could get ramped up if a uh, stoppage occurred, or is it just something where the rail system is the only thing that could really uh, provide for that movement? I think in the in the long term or medium term, sure, you know, some of that stuff could be done, and, and, I, and on the margins, right? Some companies there's you know, there's a little bit of slack at certain points in the system. But as everybody knows, right? You know, since COVID, you know, the supply chain, you know, because you know what happened in COVID, right? People stopped you know, traveling and you know having experiences, and they bought tons of stuff, right? And so we, you know, the supply chain. We all heard about all those container ships that were you know stuck off the you know the port of Los Angeles, and you, know, you have you know had struggles to get. Uh, those the ports unjammed, and you know there's a lack of truck drivers. So our whole supply chain has been under tremendous strain for close to the last three years. And so 
again, I do think for some materials on the margins, there would be some ways to kind of reduce the impact. But there's certainly no way in the short term that the the rate that the, the trucking, for example, can absorb you know the level of volume. And of course, you know, and obviously, you know, there are alternative ways, you know, other than Amtrak or commuter railroads to get to get to places. But but it would ha- it would be a you know a big hardship. Uh, and a lot of people, and again, that's and, that, and the, that's why Congress gave itself this special power to weigh in and to impose, you know, this deal. Normally, you know, Congress does not have the right to do that. You know, unions members have the right to strike, and management can lock them out if they don't have a deal, a new contract. But in this case, you know, you it just I, I do think there's wide agreement across the whole the political spectrum that this would have a, you know, a really really negative impact on the economy. Right. We're speaking with David Shepardson, correspondent with Thomson Reuters, covering transportation here on Detroit today. And David, I'm glad you brought up Congress and their power because Wednesday night, last night, the House passed a bill to avert a stoppage. However, they've passed two bills now uh, dealing with labor. Why two bills and how are they different from each other? Right. Uh, so the first bill, as you said, was passed, you know, by about a two-thirds majority, you know, 290 members to 137, and that is the bill that would impose the terms of the contract re- agreement that was reached in September. The second bill would add seven days of paid leave for rail workers, uh, and and you know, again. The railroads have talked about how for 50 years, in terms of you know, rail scheduling, especially for some unions, you know, it's a it, you know it's, it's an on-call system, and if you if you call out if you if you're sick, you basically get points deducted, and if you get so many points, then you or if you lose so many points, then you can get an unpaid suspension, and you know, so but I think lawmakers, especially after COVID, said wait a minute, you know, most workers in America have access to some paid sick leave. And it's just, you know, if someone has COVID or somebody has a, you know, some sort of illness, they, sh- they shouldn't have to, you know, take a vacation day or, uh, you know, wait until they have a scheduled day off to see a doctor. And there have been, you know, pretty harrowing stories from real workers, you know, waiting until they had a, you know, time off in order to see a doctor and were working while they're sick. And I really think, that has, you know, generated a lot of anger on the part of, um, you know, people in Congress enough that they actually have serious, some people are seriously considering, you know, not supporting, you know, blocking this, you know, rail stoppage because of this issue. And so, um, and, and then you throw in the fact that, you know, the, the railroads have been very profitable. They've cut, you know, lots of workers and they've paid, you know, tens of billions of dollars in dividends. I think, you know, I think the feeling you know, by people like Carson Levin and Senator Sanders and, you know, people like Senator Rubio, like, hey, why, on the Republican side, you know, you know, what's what's going on? Why are we, why are we stepping in you know, on this issue, you know, if it wasn't addressed at the bargaining table? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, the support and the discussions here, including uh, with Senator Rubio, because while the bill has passed the House, it still needs to get by the Senate. And we do have audio of Senator Rubio discussing his feelings on a potential deal. Well, ideally, what should happen here is that the rail workers and the rail lines should come to an agreement on their own. But if they're going to come to Congress and they're going to ask Congress to intervene and actually impose the deal, I'm not voting for a deal that the workers themselves have rejected. 
uh, a deal that was cut by labor bosses uh, that the workers don't support. So if Congress is going to be put in a position of having to impose a deal, I'm not going to vote to impose a deal that the workers themselves don't support. David, do the workers support uh, either deal that went through Congress? And is there enough support in the Senate for it to actually pass? So, you know, on the worker issue, it's certainly a split decision, right? I mean, eight, eight of the 12 unions uh, have voted in favor, and one of the four unions voted opposed. One unit voted in favor, and, you know, the, the larger one voted against. So unions are certainly split. Now, I think, again, if you talk to union members, real employees, they say this contract is a, a lot better in a lot of ways. And certainly, you know, after they've worked about a contract, getting the 14 percent pay raise, you know, automat on day one, and then this 24 percent compounded raise over the period of the contract, plus the five $1,000 bonuses, that's a pretty generous, you know, contract. You know, certainly we're in a high inflationary period, and you know, a lot of that does address, you know, the, the, the rise in costs. But I think, that, you know, people, the unions, you know, really liked the wages and benefits that came out of the deal. But there's just a lot of, you know, seething anger about the, you know, the lack of, of paid sick leave. You know, it's a hard job working, you know, in the rail industry. And, you know, the scheduling issues are not, you know, I think a lot of younger workers are just are, are very frustrated with it now. On the Senate side, you know, where they're still negotiating, Secretary Buttigieg and Secretary Walsh, who had transportation labor, are going to be meeting with Senate Democrats today in their lunch uh, to make the case for the bill and the urgency of doing this. Because this is, you know, there are people, you know, it's not just Senator Rubio, Senator Hawley on the Republican side, uh, you know, have you know raised, raised concerns about why are we, why are we imposing this deal, but but to, but. To date, you know, we've not seen any indication that the that the railroads are willing to to budge on this issue. Um, again, is, which is why we got to this point where you know the, the railroads started pressing Congress to impose the the deal because you know, the de- deadline is not really December 9th. The deadline is really the next couple of days because that's when mm-hmm. these shipments will start to start to be halted. Yeah. We're speaking with David Shepherdson, correspondent with Thomson Reuters, covering transportation here on Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. And we also want to speak with you. What concerns do you have about the potential railroad labor stoppage? Do you believe the federal government should step in and impose an agreement? Or do you think it should let the railroad companies and workers union hash out their own deal, collectively bargain? Do you believe the risk to the U.S. supply chain and economy is too high or in that Congress must intervene? We'd also love to hear from any workers out there who have worked these jobs and can tell us just what it's like, what the strain is like, the struggle there. Uh, if you're a CEO on a railroad company, we'd love to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And we can work you into the conversation. Got a note from A.W. on Twitter saying, notice Democrats only call corporations greedy for making money off inflation and never striking rail unions who are holding our supply chain hostage. Uh, Give us a call, 313-577-1019, and we can work you into this conversation, as I know this is a hot issue right now. But that leads me to another question I had for you, David, as we're talking about uh, the labor dispute and possible intervention 
If the Senate were to approve one of the bills that the House has approved, maybe the one that doesn't have things for sick leave, would there be an opportunity for labor and the uh, the companies to revisit that issue, or are they locked into that agreement since it was passed by Congress? So, that, no, that they certainly could, you know, the, there's nothing that prevents the union and the management from, you know, separately bargaining over this issue. And that was something that the Presidential Emergency Board that said, hey, this is an issue we don't want to figure out. This is something that, you know, the union and the railroad should should do together at the at the bargaining table. And remember, you know, this, the next contract is not that far away, you know. So they, this is, and they also said that these negotiations for the next contract should start earlier. So I do think, you know, there will be, you know, a big push. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, as part of ultimately winning this deal, we see some, indication from the railroads that they're willing to to negotiate on this issue or address it because you know this this you know there is a chance this might not pass you could have enough anger and at that point what by members of congress and then they'd have to go to some sort of fallback position to try to, to address this part of what i'm hearing is really at issue here is just the strain that the work itself is putting on workers considering you mentioned cuts in the amount of workers that we have working on the railroads uh so it's not even so much about the money it's about paid time off uh are there any alternate mechanisms that people are looking at that could also relieve that pressure it seems to me like having more employees for example or maybe making incentives to get more workers in uh perhaps getting more deals done on training people to do the jobs are there alternative uh ways around some of these issues that people are talking about yeah you you raise a good point you know if you think about the the united auto workers and the you know, the, ever the contracts that they reach with the Detroit three every four years, right? What do we, what do we always see as a big part of those contracts, right? You know, commitments by the auto companies to hire thousands of new workers. You know, I, it's interesting that we didn't see that type of, uh, that type of requirement in, uh, you know, in this deal. And, you know, I, I do think you know, the question is, you know, what, what's happened to the railroads, right? There are longer trains, that require fewer workers rather than, you know, smaller, more additional trains. And, you know, again, remember, again, these, the railroads, worth noting, have lost about 30% of their employees over the last six years, right? And, and these irregular schedules are really challenging for people to, to meet. And, you know, but, and, and given, you know, the, 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 just the lack of hiring, you know, you can definitely see that as an area where, you know, unions, and management are going to have to come together because long term, you know, how attractive is the job you're making? Now, one one point is worth making. The railroads say the average worker, you know, covered by these contracts is making like a, we'll make one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in compensation. You know, obviously that's a very a very good wage, you know, relative to, to average wages in the United States. So, you know, it is worth noting that despite you know the the, the difficulties of the work, you know, the, the workers are pretty well compensated. Yeah, no, I understand that, but I also understand that they're cut late they cut workers so you know you can pay people 160 200 at the end of the day you still have to have the ability to do the work um or or else i would seem if everybody was happy with the amount we wouldn't be in this dispute in the first place i I totally agree with you and it is worth noting that there have been some complaints from some big customers about rail service deteriorating you know that there haven't been enough workers and you know there have been some high profile shutdown or, or not shutdowns but you know, brief 
halt to rail service because of, of a lack of employees at times because of COVID and other issues. So, no, I think the, I think the railroads recognize that they have to do more to rebuild staff and make have a more, you know, uh, you know, effective performance uh, if you know long term, especially given like demands for rail service only keep increasing, right? As we keep shipping more and more goods, and how you know, remember, you know, rail is is a much less carbon intensive way of, of, of shipping goods rather than you know gas powered, you know. You know, trucks, you know, moving over the roads. So there are a lot of advantages to rail, but the question is, you know, what, what, what's rail going to do in the companies to, to, to rebuild the industry and make it a more attractive job for, for workers going forward? That's right. We're speaking with David Shepardson, a correspondent with Thomson Reuters who covers transportation. And we want to speak with you as well. Give us a call, 313-577-1019, to let us know your take on what's happening right now with the labor dispute and how Congress is working and involved with it uh, on the railways. When we return to Detroit today, we're going to continue our conversation with David Shepardson, as well as get an idea of where the president's office is on this matter. And a little bit later, Representative Andy Levin will join us as well to discuss this. Give us a call 313-577-1019 when we return. WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson and discussing the potential labor stoppage, railroad uh, stoppage, worker stoppage that uh, we're all concerned about here uh, with the help of David Shepardson, correspondent with Thomson Reuters covering transportation. I wanted to get an idea of where President Biden was in all of this. But to help us get into that, we're joined by John in East Point. John, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Yes, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly. Uh, I just wanted to say that I'm very disappointed to see the president, our Congress, and uh, seemingly both political parties, uh, unfortunately, ab- abandon labor and force these railroad workers to accept substandard uh, contract uh, as they voted and simultaneously as these rail companies rake in record profits year over year. I appreciate the concern, John. And I leave the question to you, David. Uh, Where's the president at on this? I will note that it's my understanding that at least some of the unions did accept uh, some of the terms that have been uh, contemplated by Congress. So to the extent that this latest package with increased uh, um compensation, or I should say increased time off, is unacceptable by uh, labor. I still want to know what your opinion is on that. But go ahead. I, I leave the questions to you there, David. No, the the caller definitely, John, is raising you know, a lot of the anger that members of the unions that voted against the deal, and, and some who, you know, some others, uh, you know, because you know, Congress does have this special power, you know, to, to intervene in these type of, of issues. And, and, then, and workers, I think, you know, think that as a result of that, right, that the railroads have more leverage, that they can basically, you know, threaten to 
you know, to start, you know, halting service and, you know, the, the risks, the economy, to shipping, even, you know, finished, you know, gasoline for vehicles and ethanol, right? I mean, you know, almost all ethanol travels, you know, on, on rail cars, you know, which accounts for, you know, more than 10% of all the fuel that the, the Americans use to, to drive their, their cars. So, uh, you know, no, I think, I think that's right. And President Biden has been, has called himself the most pro-union president in history. And he's appointed people to the National Labor Relations Board that have been much more supportive of organized labor. He's called for legislation in Congress to make it easier to organize and, and join the union. And so, no, I think, you know, this is his, is this his position here certainly, you know, at odds with, you know, his his you know his very strong support of labor, you know, for the last couple of years, yeah, since he's been in office. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, right, the the impact to the economy is just so overwhelming that within within days, right, it would just it would grind so much of what we take for granted to a halt that it's just you know he and you know, the White House are just not willing to, to take that that risk when, you know, four of the 12 unions have voted against this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you again for your call there, John, at East Point, and bringing up those concerns. Don't tell me you're pro-labor. Show me you're pro-labor with your actions as we move to Dave in Farmington. Dave, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Good morning. Uh, so production in the Midwest, what, what could we need more than railroads to help make more in the U.S.? that all the economists are are realizing that globalization was basically um, a production, and we need to build more here. And what and railroads are at the heart of that, and we have to support the workers to keep production here in the U.S. You, Dave, again, you bring up a great point because we're making this push right now to produce more things locally to prevent supply chain shortages, and this come, pops up right at that time. David, I present that point to you. Go ahead with your response to uh, no, Dave and Farmington. No, no. no. He's no, he's absolutely right that sort of that rail is a is a key part of you know the the integrated supply chain that's essential to you know producing you know finished goods in the United States you know whether it's you know washing machines or you know you know cars and trucks uh, you, you know they're just you know this our, our the way our, our transportation system is set up there's just no there's no alternative for a lot of a lot of products uh, without without rail and you know you know versus you know just importing you know completely finished goods off of, from container ships you know off of the port so no I, I I I think if there's anything that comes out of this you know beyond this deal will be sort of a reassessment of sort of or the place of rail how sustainable it is and remember you know we only have seven class one railroads left there's you know there's only there we I think we're down. You know, there's a one big proposed merger that would cut that down to six, uh, that uh, which account for more than 80 percent of all rail traffic. So, I, I do think this is going to cast an eye on those big cuts in the workforce and the consolidation. Is the industry pre- prepared for, to handle you know the the expected growth and shipments over the next few years. Joining us in the conversation right now as I'm speaking with David Shepardson, correspondent with Thomson Reuters covering transportation. We're also joined with one of the Congress people helping to try to resolve this labor dispute. I'm joined by Congressman Andy Levin, Democrat from the 9th District. Congressman Levin, how are you doing today? Hey, Nick. Good morning. Hey, David. Good to hear your voices. And um, 
Uh, I'm glad you're talking about this important topic. Well, give us the latest, uh, Congressman Levin. What's happening in Congress? What have you guys done, and what are you looking to do? Well, so what's today? Thursday? So basically, uh, we spent, I, I spent all of Tuesday on the phone uh, pushing to uh, get some basic justice for these workers to get uh, some modicum of, of sick time incorporated into this deal. And the speaker, who's a legislative genius, ends up having us vote on two separate things. It's not my preferred way of doing it. I would have rather the House put sick days into an agreement and send it as one vote over to the Senate and then let people like Senator Rubio uh, walk the walk and vote for uh, what many of the workers want. Uh, but we instead, as you noted earlier, I think we passed two uh, resolutions, one to impose the contract that the Presidential Emergency Board and the, the, the railroads and the unions uh, came to, and then a second resolution to add seven days of paid sick leave to the deal. So I hope the Senate will pass both of them. We obviously passed both of them in the House yesterday. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's where things stand. Uh, there's so much to say about this, Nick, but I, I think, let me, the first thing is I was able to listen to a little of your conversation. First of all, precision scheduled railroading is new. It's new-ish. It's over the last number of years. It's a horrifying system where the, the freight rail companies have systematically stripped out workers. You're saying, oh, we need more trained workers. You're darn right. But they purposely are having many less staff to make higher profits and straining the heck out of these workers' lives. Yeah. They have no sick time. They have no time with their families. I mean, did you see the Washington Post story about a guy who had to miss a cardiology appointment because he was on call and then he died of a heart attack some, you know, some week, day or weeks later on the railroad? I mean, come on. Uh, so we, we need justice for these workers, and um, I hope the Senate will you know, take action and include uh, some, some, a reasonable amount of sick time in, in what they pass, too. I'm glad you brought that up. We did have a caller earlier, Congressman Levin, who actually expressed disappointment in Congress, saying that this was a bad deal that was passed and it had, doesn't go far enough to protect workers. What would you have to say to uh, folks who say that you're not doing enough with this bill with the seven paid days of sick leave to support labor? Well, so I think it's a perfectly legitimate uh, perspective. I think what folks, especially in, in Detroit, all of us who are so steeped in the history of the auto industry and other industries like that, we have two separate regimes in the, for private sector labor relations. The dominant one that we talk about most, the National Labor Relations Act, covers the auto industry and most of the private sector nonprofits. The Railway Labor Act is separate. It goes back to the 20s. And it governs just the railways and the airlines, and it's a really quirky, weird regime. It call it envisions it, it envisions Congress stepping in to settle disputes and the president having a role far different than anything in the National Labor Relations Act. Contrary to what some people have said, the agreement that was arrived at was the result of lots of negotiation between management and labor. And, you know, these unions are democratically elect their leaders. They elect bargaining committees. There are 12 different unions. It's exceedingly complex. It's not like the auto industry and a 
you know, like recently we had several years ago, we had a strike at GM, right? This is 12 different unions trying to agree on something. Let me, let me speak to precisely what that caller or, or, or tweeter or whatever said. I said on the floor yesterday, if the unions came together in any kind of thing like a, a, a combined voice and said, Congress, stay the heck out of this. Let us settle this with the employers. I would really honor that. But they have not done that at all. So they want uh, a settlement arrived at now. The statute envisions Congress doing this. So then the question becomes not whether Congress should act or not, but what we'll do. And I agree with the caller that we ought to uh, err on the side of making a more humane contract because these real companies are many of them owned by private equity firms. They're giving obscene stock buybacks to uh, their investors. This is of as good a symbol as any as what has caused the level of income and wealth inequality in this country. The idea that people who in the first place devote their lives to a job where they're going to be separated from their families and from their doctors and whatnot for typically a week at a time at least, and then have a couple days off, yeah. sometimes longer, that they can't have some sick days? I mean, come on. Yeah. That's just disgusting. And, and uh, you know, con- so Congress needs to err on the side of justice here. Yeah. We're going to loop you back into the conversation, David, in a moment as we're speaking right now with Congressman Andy Levin, Democrat from the 9th District here on Detroit Today. And Congressman Levin, before I have to let you go, I do have another question just about the fact that you, as you mentioned, you passed two bills, and one of them would be would seemingly be not as strong, not as pro-labor as the second. I know you fancy yourself a pro-labor congressman, but by passing one that's weaker, don't you just give the Senate an opportunity to pass the weaker bill and allow uh, labor to be stuck with that? Yes, that is exactly right. But you have to realize, that, so what I preferred and what I lobbied for and didn't get was one vote with the six days included it you have to realize though that the senate may well have rejected that right and then it would have come back to us and we would have had to probably pass something different so i'm not sure it has it will affect the outcome here i just would have liked to make the senate vote on one bill that included the expanded sick days because i think that's the better way to go it adds a little bit more pressure to, to try to get a, a better outcome here. David Shepherdson, do you have any questions for Congressman Levin? Uh, do you, hey, hey, Congressman Levin, uh, do you think there's any chance the railroads will voluntarily do something to get the, you know, the Senate to approve this? I mean, will they move at all on the issue of sick, sick time, do you think? Absolutely not. They have had years. You know, remember, these workers have been working without a contract for years. Right. And why? Because the railroads refuse to come to the table on this. I mean, the unions went down to four paid sick days in their negotiations, and the railroads still refused. So this is why I preferred the other route, because now the railroads are furiously lobbying for the Senate to just pass you know, as Nick said, hey, just pass the basic agreement from the Presidential Emergency Board and don't include the extra sick days. That's their position. Um, they are all in on this. I know it's a wonky term, but PSR, get used to it, precision schedule railroading. It is as great an example 
of rapacious capitalism uh, as as any out there in our economy right now. It's shameful. And uh, they do it precisely to uh, raise profits. And you know what, David? One great thing to investigate is the customers don't like it either. Uh, the, and especially smaller companies that are trying to ship things on railroads. Right. They, they create these standard schedules where trains just automatically go on certain schedules. And so it hurts uh, smaller com- businesses that are trying to get their goods shipped or to receive goods that they need shipped. So it's a whole conversation in itself. But, um, you know, I think I, I, I'm, I'm all for the workers here. I'm fighting as hard as I can to get the Senate now to adopt the seven days of paid sick leave we included. And of course, if Democrats had workable majorities in both houses, we would have long passed a requirement that all companies give paid sick leave to their workers. We're one of just a literally a few countries in the whole world that doesn't do that and the other ones are not not uh economies that we want to compare ourselves to so we got to have reform in this country jake mcgraw on twitter says he has an issue that the issue of public health has been discussed for workers without paid six days who are penalized when calling in or he has an issue with public health being discussed for workers without sick days who are penalized for calling in sick so often uh, they have to work sick days, travel across the country, and work in close co- proximity with others on the train. And we also have a comment from Richard Roos on Twitter saying, Congress should not intervene. Let the companies and unions work it out. Democrats are being hypo- hypocritical here, not supporting workers' right to paid time off and sick leave. Uh, I leave it with those questions. Before we let you go, Congressman Levin, anything else you have to say on the issue? No, just that I, you know, I, I just would reiterate that the, that the unions uh, have not asked us to stay out of this. Right. They've asked us to settle it. And so um, I'm trying to honor their wishes, the elected representatives of the workers, while pushing for, frankly, more uh, sick time than, than they wanted. They're nervous about a repeat of what happened in 1991, 1992, when there was a presidential emergency board the recommendations were not implemented and the workers ended up with a contract that was a lot worse mm. than the one on the table. Right. So we're trying to do the one on the table plus some sick debt time. And I think that's the best we can do in this situation. And we're going to have to leave it there. Congressman Levin, thank you so much for your time and joining us today on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. And good to hear your voice too, David. Thank, thank you. Care. And David Shepardson, thanks again for joining us today on Detroit Today. Thank you. When we return, we will move to Wayne County and have a conversation with Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy about what the uh, department is doing, the prosecutor's office is doing to help women who have survived uh, sexual assault. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. 
And for this part of the conversation, we move back to an earlier date when on August 17th, 2009, an assistant Wayne County prosecutor walked into a Detroit warehouse and what he saw shocked him. Over 11,341 untested rape kits, some dating back 25 years, hermetically sealed and collected but never tested. It was an unmitigated failure to the sexual assault survivors represented by those kits between 1984 through 2009. Following the discovery, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office announced their 11,000 to zero plan, and last month they announced that all of those kits have now been tested. To help us understand more about the project and how it will impact sexual assault survivors, we're joined by Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy. Prosecutor Worthy, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Can you uh, tell us and explain to listeners what the 11,000 to zero campaign is? Yes, just to add a little context to what you said in your introduction, you know, we have 239 convictions now. We have many, many cases that are still being investigated, and we are looking at all the cases where there are positive DNA hits. But we still have, and we've been doing that work consistently over the last decade or so, every day, trying to get this, these, bring these victims justice. So what's happened now is we've taken a, a new tact because we still have about 6,500 cases that we want to investigate, but we have to reach out and try to find the victims. But we don't want to approach them if they don't want to be approached. In other words, we want to make sure to give them a mechanism, because we don't force anybody to do anything, to contact us. So this 11,000 to zero campaign was birthed, and we have a website, and we have a call-in line called an opt-in line. We want people to know that we think their case still matters. We still care about them. We still want to bring them justice. And if they want us to look into their case, please give us a call or leave us, leave us some information online. So it has a multifaceted, uh, multifaceted approach. So we have, um, we have right now we have a website up. You'll, I hope you've seen the billboards and the bus placards advertising. We've had a number of people. I believe the number is... 76 women have called us who want information about their cases. And so that's kind of unprecedented because we want to make sure that we contact them and we're in the process of having the investigators contact them and give them information about their case. So just because you call us doesn't mean you want to go forward with your case, but you just might want information about what's happening with your case. So the next phase of this is we're going to be going into southeastern Michigan, Macomb, Oakland, um, uh, of course, Wayne and some other areas, and we're going into all the barbershops, the booty shops, the nail salons, churches, and we want to try to find these victims where they are. And we know that a number of these victims will, will patronize places like this. We're also going to be having some advertisements in, in the entertainment venues in South, Southeast Michigan, so it's an all-out trying to find these women, find out if they want to know about their cases, because at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that we've done everything that we can to service these survivors. Certainly, and I appreciate that context earlier, as we do want to get out the best information here. And that's why I want to ask you, for women who might be impacted by this, what recommendations would you have for them related to this project? Well, we, they can call our website, which is myrapekit.com. It's confidential. Uh, no one will know that they have actually contacted us. We will contact them directly if they give us their contact information. And we have, like I said, we've had people respond to that already. But once we get the word out, and thank you for helping us do that, 
then we expect many more to contact us if they want to be contacted. Certainly, certainly. Uh, of course, the underlying issue here uh, is, was very sad for us all to have uh, that backlog of kits. And I think in order to fix a problem, you kind of have to understand the cause. Do we know what happened that allowed for that backlog to occur in the first place? Yes, there's a number of things. And before I answer that, I want to just tell them the phone number they can call. Certainly, the opt-in please. line is 313-224-4111. 313-224-4111. We have someone monitoring that phone during work hours. And if they call after hours and leave the information, we will contact them the next morning. So, again, the website is myrapekit.com. And, again, it's confidential, and we'll direct you wherever you want to go. And the phone number, if you want to call in, um, 313-224-4111. Yes, we have studied this for over a decade now, and there are a number of reasons why this, was, uh, this occurred. Anywhere from changes of leadership in the Detroit Police Department, where everybody had their different um, issues that they wanted to deal with, from blaming the victim, rape culture. Uh, we, back in the day, decades ago, we had women that were brave enough to report and they were treated extremely poorly for the investigators that they tried to report to. So not only were they um, assaulted in the most intimate of ways, were also degraded and talked about and laughed at in some cases when they came in to report, if you can imagine that. They were called names. They were you know, completely humiliated just because they wanted to walk in and report their sexual assault. They weren't believed. And so, again... That was something that happened as well. And then people just didn't take it seriously. You know, sexual assault is a crime that generally uh, is mainly uh, something that affects women. It's not always women. There are children, of course, and some men. But because it is a crime, um, and this is our theory, that affects mainly women, it's not taken as seriously. So there are a number of issues, rape culture, uh, lack of training, lack of sensitivity, sensitivity training, lack of training in neurobiology of trauma. Uh, treating people the wrong way when they are traumatized, just because someone may come in and have a flat affect or they may you know, be uncomfortable with nervous laughter doesn't mean that they shouldn't be believed. And so we have made it our business to train law enforcement to take steps so this can't happen. We also have a, a, um, a, a process here in Michigan where we can track rape kits because they weren't being tracked, and now rape kits are being tracked statewide not just a Southeastern Michigan problem, but they're being tracked statewide to make sure we don't ever have this problem again. So there are a number of things that we put into place. Um, Detroit actually is a national leader on this issue. People look to us to see how, to, see how we should do this and handle these issues. And we also have a very, very uh, robust way that we treat our victims who have been traumatized. We have a victim notification policy. When we contact our victims, we come in and we do it very gently. We just let them know. We ask them to think about it, and we will come back if they want us to come back once they've contacted us. So, again, this is uh, over a decade's worth of work. We have many collaborative partners, and it's also very important to mention that we have services available, too. If people uh, want to call our opt-in line number, again, 313-224-4111, or they go to the website. They will also be given information if they, need, if they need treatment, if they need mental health treatment, if they need services, Avalon Healing Services, their contact information is there as well. So we don't want this to trigger anybody, but if it does, we have uh, so- social work services for them as well. So we've tried to leave no stone unturned in caring for these survivors that are still out there. 
We're speaking again with Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy here on 1019 WDET in Detroit today about the 11,000 to zero campaign. And we're going to put that information on our website also. So uh, you can go to the website as she's listed. But if you end up at Detroit Today or WDET, we will have that website for you also. I believe That's fantastic. Thank you. No problem. Absolutely. This is important. Uh, And Prosecutor Worthy, I think you mentioned uh, a little bit about uh, the numbers of people coming forward. How quickly are new cases being processed now when people contact you? Well, of course, we all have our resource issues, so as quickly as possible. We do have a robust team of investigators. These cases are all cold cases, and so it's very investigation-heavy. So we have a number of investigators, and we can get back to you uh, fairly quickly because we do have a number of investigators working on this. And I should have also made clear from the very beginning, uh, we're talking about people who had rape kits done in Detroit uh, from 1984 through 2009. 1984 through 2009. If you, had a, if you had a rape kit done and you don't have any information, you want more information, you want us to go forward, if you were given, if you did a sexual assault kit during those years, this is what this, this campaign is directed toward. It does not mean, however, that if you want information on your sexual assault and you do not fall within those years or you didn't have a rape kit done, you can still call in and we will still follow up with you. For women who went through that process, though, and as we did mention, and we're trying to be sensitive to it, it can be pretty tough. And to now have this come up again, they say, you didn't listen to me before, and it's been so long. How do I know something's going to happen to it? I want to give you an opportunity right now. What do you say to those women who are listening? We have tried from the very beginning, and we've, we've, we've got, I think just about everybody knows about this rape kit project that we've been working on. This is a new twist that we're doing now. But we want people to know that your case still matters. It doesn't matter how old or how long ago this happened. We are still interested in providing justice for you should you want it. We are still interested in providing services for you uh, if you want it. We believe you. We wish and we apologize that you had to go through this in the first place, that someone back in the day that when you did your rape kit done years ago, no one paid attention to you. And, but we want you to know that in Wayne County, with, when you're dealing with the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, we care, we will go forward, and we will do everything we can to right the wrongs that you went through, whether it's just giving you information, whether it's providing you services, or whether it's investigating your case and trying to pro- uh, prosecute your perpetrator. Uh, Prosecutor Worthy, before I let you go, and I about have about a minute left, I was speaking with Stephen Henderson, who I believe has spoken to you uh, recently, and, yeah. and we were commenting on how uh, last month was the 30th anniversary of the Malice Green uh, yeah. incident. We talked about that yesterday at length, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I it's just, hard to believe. It is very hard to believe. Uh, we only have like a minute, but I did, considering the historic nature of that case, just give you wanted to give you a moment to reflect on that and uh, your career since. Yeah, so that was something that happened back in the, he was killed, beaten to death by the police in 1992. We did the trial from June to August of 1993 in front of George W. Crockett III, who is now deceased. May he rest in peace. We were able to be the first in the nation to prosecute uh, police officers for killing uh, somebody on duty. And they were convicted of murder again. And as, it, as everybody knows the story, they went to the Court of Appeals. It was reversed. It had to be uh, tried again, and they were still convicted at that time of manslaughter. So, again, um, we took it very seriously back then. At that time, John O'Hare, who was my boss when I was an assistant prosecutor and did this case, took it very seriously. He, didn't, he wasn't concerned about the political backlash, and he faced a, he faced a lot of political backlash. He allowed us to, to let the facts and evidence speak for themselves. We presented it to uh, two juries, and they came back after eight and nine days 
of deliberation, respectively, with their verdict. So we're very proud of that work. We've continued to carry on that mantle in terms of uh, police reform and prosecuting police officers who uh, run afoul of the law. We, we firmly believe that most police officers are overwhelmingly good officers, but we still have a number of officers that choose to do things that are just flat out wrong, brutal, and uh, just unforgivable. So, thank you f- again. And, and I appreciate your work there, and thank you for your comment and your time and reflection, Prosecutor Worthy. Thank you. You're listening to 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow when we'll continue our series looking at what conservatism means in the new year.